reading today is uh, Psalm 102. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and is withered. I forget to eat my bread, because my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I am a lonely sparrow on a housetop. All day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink because of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the, the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, that he looked down from his holy height, from heaven the Lord looked at the earth, to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that made, they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord, and in Jerusalem his praise, when his people gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. O oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days. You whose years endure throughout all generations, of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, and you will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants, servants shall dwell secure, and their offspring shall be established before you. This is the word of the Lord. This week, we hope to celebrate the beginning of a new year. People all over the world 
will join together um, in celebration and, and revelry and excitement, um, waiting for the clock to strike midnight. And the occasion of New Year's Eve in our culture is traditionally one dedicated to reflecting on the year gone by and uh, to stoking the fires of our imaginations for what the next one could have in store. And the feelings that we often uh, think ought to be associated with that are uh, things like excitement and euphoria and joy and hope. Um, and yet, in conversations with a lot of people, that's not always the case. And so I was curious about this and I Googled it. And um, I, I typed in feelings associated with New Year's Eve. And for, well, I, I didn't go any further than the third page of results, but there was nothing positive at all. The first article was a Vice article called Why is New Year's Eve so depressing? Um, <laughs> the, the internet would have us believe that the most common feelings actually inspired by New Year's Eve are sadness, loneliness, and fear. So why this disparity between what we are supposedly supposed to feel and what we actually do feel? Uh, though this isn't unique to the celebration of New Year, reflecting on the passage of time often yields mixed feelings. Yes, as we look back, we can see more clearly God's guiding hand in the events of our lives, and this can be cause for gratefulness. And yes, um, as we look forward, the prospect of a fresh start with new possibilities can be exciting. But looking back and reflecting also provides opportunity to feel more sharply the sting of a lost loved one or the loneliness of not being able to be near those we love for various reasons or not having anyone at all to share life with. Maybe you've been diagnosed with some physical or mental ailment this past year and the prognosis isn't good. Maybe you've lost a job that you really enjoyed or really need. Whatever the case, perhaps the future looks bleak and uninviting to you. Honest reflection brings us to the awareness that we can no longer avoid or distract ourselves from the fact that all is not as it should be in this world. And this is a universal and fundamental problem that we cannot help but being confronted with. Everything in life changes, and we don't like change. The medieval poet Geoffrey Chaucer uh, famously wrote this. He said, time and tide wait for no man. The passage of time and its eroding effects are inevitable. And this always makes me think of the, uh, the song Dust in the Wind by Kansas, and the first verse is actually printed on the front of your bulletin. I'm not going to sing it to you, but I'll read it. Uh, uh, the first verse goes, I close my eyes only for a moment, then the moment's gone. All my dreams pass before my eyes of curiosity. Dust in the wind, everything is dust in the wind. But it's not just time and things that are slipping away. In fact, the last verse of Dust in the Wind, and this one's not printed in your bulletin, but it goes like this. It says, don't hang on. Nothing lasts forever but the earth and sky. It slips away and all your money won't another minute buy. Dust in the wind, all we are 
corroborated by the New Testament author James, who says that we are like a morning fog that is here for a moment and then vanishes. In his book, A Grief Observed, which he wrote following the passing of his own wife, C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, time itself is simply one more name for death. Everything and everyone we love has an expiration date, including ourselves, and time relentlessly drags us onward toward it. And this is the complaint of our psalmist in the passage that we're in this morning. And before we jump into the text and explore this in much greater detail, because I realize this is an incredibly heavy topic, um, I want to give us just a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and that is in the purpose of the, the writing of this psalm. Um, it isn't to depress us, and it isn't to take the wind out of our sails or to ruin New Year's for us. Uh, the psalmist writes this psalm as we see in verse 18. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. It's so that we would not despair in this reality. The psalmist knows that the degree to which we shield ourselves from or shy away from the uncomfortable truth of our mortality, uh, we actually rob ourselves of the joy that can only come from the central premise of um, another book, Remember Death, by Matthew McCollum, which there's another little quote on the front of your bulletin. Um, he says this, he says, wisdom comes from honesty about the world as it is. By avoiding the truth about death, we're avoiding the truth about Jesus. I highly recommend that book, by the way. So let's dive into the text. Um, as the psalmist uh, walks us through a very honest engagement with human experience and hopes to lead us to this surprising path to living hope. All right, so verse, uh, verses one and two. Hear my prayer, O Lord, let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me and answer me speedily in the day in which I call. This is a prayer. Right? And this is a prayer to God, but not to just any God. This is a prayer to the Lord, to Yahweh. This is the covenant God of Israel. This is a God that the psalmist knows. They have a relationship to draw on. And in the same way, we are invited to speak to a God that cares about our pain and wants us to experience his competency to the appeal that the psalmist is making. He says, answer me speedily in the day that I call. And this is a kind of uh, holy impatience. And this is the type of impatience that God actually invites. He wants us to beseech him to act. He wants to answer these kinds of prayers. And so let's keep this in mind as we move through this. The psalmist then moves into a stack of vivid images about human experience. Um, and I think in so doing, he helps us to see our own condition a little bit more clearly. Verse 3 says, For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. So the first image of the psalmist's life is that of a fire that has been left unattended and is slowly burning out. The smoke is, is drifting away and dissipating, just like the passage from James 4 earlier. Um, 
And he describes his bones, like the, the, um, the very structure, the core of his body. Um, it's, it's fading out like embers that are growing cold. He can feel it. Um, he says, my heart is struck down. This is 4a. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. And the verb used here has the force of receiving a fatal blow. Humankind has been struck with a mortal wound. Right? There's a sense in which there's a sense in which we begin dying the day we are born. We draw our first breath and the clock starts counting down. We are helpless and passive recipients of the effects of time's relentless march. And the psalmist here likens our lives to the image of cut grass. And it's like if you mow your lawn without a beggar and there's grass, cut grass laying on top of the lawn everywhere. At first, it's, it looks lush and green and doesn't look anything different than any of the other grass. But because it has been cut off from its, its source of perennial life, um, it will most certainly in time scorch in the sun, dry out, and blow away in the wind. This is what life is like in many ways. Verse 4b and 5, I forget to eat my bread because of my loud groaning. My bones cling to my flesh. The psalmist is so distressed by this realization that there's physiological symptoms. He's in agony. Right? He's, he's stopped eating. And this is a distressing truth. He says that my bones cling to my flesh. Every fiber of his being is desperately clinging to his truth. But the effects of time and its inevitable decay don't just affect the psalmist. They affect everyone that he loves as well. The certainty of death casts its shadow over every relationship that we have. If you love anyone or anything in this world, one way or another, you will lose them. And the more you love them, the more it will hurt when you do. I think the band Death Cab for Cutie said it well in their song, What Sarah Said, which is a song about being in the hospital watching a loved one pass away. And, and the central lyric of the song is simply that love is watching someone die. To allow yourself to love anyone or anything is to open yourself, to make yourself vulnerable to the inevitable pain of loss. This is the tragedy of our human story in one sense. Verse 6 and 7, because of this, he says, I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. In Hebrew poetry, owls were symbolic of desolation and isolation. They made their prophets of the Old Testament and would use this when they, when they were pronouncing judgment. They would say that, you know, owls are going to make their home in your cities. And this was not a good omen. It reflected the lack of human life present. Even more than that, according to ceremonial law in Israel, owls are also unclean. Uh, Leviticus 11 says, These you shall detest among the birds. So the psalmist is lamenting his intense loneliness, but he's not just lonely in terms of proximity to other people, but he's lonely in that he's, he's a symbol of 
the curse. And this plays into the next verses, verse 8, where his enemies taunt him. They deride him. They use his name for a curse. He's being mocked. He's being mocked for his faith in a God who allows him to suffer the same fate as everyone else. They add insult to injury by using his name as a mocking title, possibly synonymous for for suffering or weakness or foolishness. Um, And this kind of resonated with me because one time I worked with a couple of people who would, would, they would tease me for my faith, but they were, we got along well enough, but they did not respect my faith at all. And it seemed as though they actually delighted in anything that could be that he was a sham. So whenever there was a headline about a scandal um, or, or some sort of moral failing in some major church leader, they would actually be kind of giddy about it as they brought it up to, to sort of flaunt it and ask what I had to say about it. And they would, every time they would bring it up the same way in kind of like a sing-songy voice, they would say, oh, silly Christians. And I knew exactly what was coming. Verse 9 and 10. Dried ashes like bread and mingled tears of my drink because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. This is difficult. These are difficult verses. The theology of the Psalms is consistent throughout, and it is always, they always take a high view of God's sovereignty and control over all the events of life. The psalmist identifies God as the sender of his afflictions. And it's important to distinguish these two because the psalmist has acknowledged that it's his physical failing body and his mocking enemies that are delivering the affliction, but ultimately he believes it is God who has sent this affliction to him. And he's really grappling with this. You know, why would God do this to him? He describes God as having taken him up and thrown him down. And the language here is, is reminiscent of a tornado or a tsunami that just it picks up whatever is in its path and it carries it off and just throws it down randomly in the middle of nowhere. The psalmist is feeling really beat up. And he's feeling beat up by God. And here he rounds out his complaint by saying, my days are like an evening shadow. This is like um, at the end of the day, as your shadow is lengthening at a seemingly exponential rate, the, the closer the sun gets to the horizon, uh, he's feeling this quickening, this speed, like his life is racing towards its end. I wither away like grass. He comes back to this metaphor of grass to sort of close this section of his complaint. And then he juxtaposes it immediately with verse 12. So he says, first thing, verse 11, my days are like an evening shadow. I wither away, wither away like grass. He's saying we are like shadows. We're like dying grass. We are temporal. We are fleeting. We are here and then we are gone in the blink of an eye. But then immediately in verse 12, he says, but God is enthroned forever. God is remembered throughout all generations. God is eternal, unfading, unchanging. He is not subject to the curse of death. 
as we are. If, if life is a boat being swept along in the currents towards a waterfall, everything around us that we try to tie ourselves off to for security is like floating driftwood that's just going over the falls with us. But he sees God. He sees God as he really is, as unchanging and as eternal, as unmoving, unyielding. This is something that he could actually put his hope in. Someone that he could actually put his hope in, rather. Right? Because taken in isolation, it's hard to see our story, our human story, as anything other than tragedy. But God's story is one of victory and certainty. And this is where the psalmist turns his attention to next. This is the victory of God's story. The psalmist is an Israelite. And so he would have been very well versed in the story of God uh, that began at creation, um, but moved quickly into uh, God choosing Israel as a people for himself. Uh, growing them into a nation of, of 12 tribes, rescuing them out of slavery in Egypt, meeting their every need in the wilderness for 40 years, establishing them in their own land, raising them up as a great nation. The psalmist is well acquainted with God's story of victory. Um, God also covenanted with them, saying that he would always be their God, and they would always be his people. And because God is eternal and unchanging, the one who was, who is, and who is to come, the psalmist has full confidence that he can trust God's promise to never abandon or forsake his covenant people. And so we'll take a bigger chunk here, but let's listen to some of the language here as we read verse 13 to 17. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord. And all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. The psalmist trusts that God will continue to preserve and uphold his people. He will rebuild Zion. And if we look at, at some of the language here, Zion's repeated a number of times in 13 to 22. Um, and Zion is, is this, it's a covenant symbol. It's language that is representative of God's um, presence with and among his people. And the Israelites, they thought of the city of Jerusalem um, as this place. They thought of it as synonymous with Zion because that was the, the pinnacle of their um, greatness as a nation was when it result, revolved around Jerusalem and the temple. And so the psalmist has complete faith that God will answer his prayer. He can be trusted. And he finds comfort by locating himself and his story within this covenant narrative. So we referenced verse 18 earlier. He wants this to be recorded. That he looked down from his holy height. From heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die. 
that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise when peoples gather together in kingdoms to worship God. The psalmist wants anyone who will ever struggle the way he has with the reality of mortality to know that God, the God who sits enthroned above the heavens for all eternity, who isn't bound by time and space or of those who are and rescues them from their fate. The psalmist paints a picture here of the restored city of God where his people live with him and worship him for all eternity. He makes his story become our story. This is really the third point. But there's a problem in that we still die. Right? So how can we be sure that this prayer is answered, that the groans of the prisoners are answered and that they're set free, those who were doomed to die? How can we know that this prayer is answered? Well, let's look at verses 25 to 27. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, and you will change them like a robe. They will pass away, but you are the same. Your years have no end. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one with you, or on your phone, um, to Hebrews 1. In the first chapter of Hebrews, the uh, author is explaining who Jesus is is. And he says some things that ought to catch our eye. He's, uh, he's differentiating between Jesus and the angels, saying that God, uh, this God, the God of the Israelites, had spoken very differently about angels than he, did about, than he did about the Son. And so here, the author is saying, but of the Son, he says, that is God, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Sorry, this is verse 8. And, and then jump ahead to verse 10. And he says, and you, Lord, and this, if you hold it up side by side to um, our passage, 25 to 27, there's a lot of similarities. It says, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Jesus is the covenant God of Israel. Jesus is this king enthroned forever. And the writer of Hebrews goes on to say that he's also the sympathetic high priest who is able to understand our experience because he chose to enter into it. He chose the eternal one who is life made himself subject to death and decay. He chose to enter into our experience, to experience humiliation, to experience loss and abandonment, suffering and abuse, and ultimately death. And he went to the grave, but he rose again, destroying death's grip fully and finally. 
He resurrected and sits in heaven on his throne. And we get this look in Revelation into this throne room where uh, Jesus is enthroned and these people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are gathered around him, worshiping him because there is no more death, there is no more disease, there is no more night or morning or weeping there. The chains of time and the death that it brings along with it have been destroyed. And it's through the death and resurrection of Jesus that we who were far off, we who were enemies of God, we who were these helpless, groaning prisoners have been set free. We have been given a way to be brought into this covenant people of God and to receive all of the benefits of this distinction. We are joined to Jesus by grace. His story, when, sorry, we are joined to Jesus by grace, his story becomes our story. And look at verse 28. The psalmist ends here by saying, the children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. If your faith is in Jesus, this is your story too. We are secure. We are established in the presence and care of an eternal, unchanging God, the one who remains. Your life has become a thread in the tapestry of grace that God has been weaving since the beginning of time. We cannot see the whole picture yet. But we have the promise that when we finally do see it, it's going to be breathtaking. It is going to give meaning and purpose and value to our lives. My friends, this week as you celebrate uh, New Year's, however you do that, if you do that, Know this, that true joy and peace and significance and meaning and purpose can only be found in, rela in relationship to the one who will never die, to the one who will never fade away, who will never be forgotten and who will never forget you. And so if you are going to resolve to do anything in the new year, let it be this. Resolve to find your place in the unfolding story of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And let that reality, let that identity be the thing that dictates every decision you make. Because the unchanging truth of the unchanging God changes everything. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you are eternal, Lord, that you sit enthroned forever, Lord, that you are a solid rock that we can cling to. You are an anchor in the storm of life for us. 
God, thank you for inclining your ear towards us in our struggling, in our wrestling. Thank you for understanding what it's like because Jesus entered into the tragedy of human life, Lord, and thank you for his victory over it. And thank you that that victory can be our victory through him. Jesus, we love you. In his name we pray, amen.